we are finishing our study in Second Kings. I know, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? All right, so how many of you did all the reading this week or caught up with what, what's going on here? All right, so last week we had a great time talking about King Hezekiah and the faithful king that God had uh, given during a very hard time. But what happens afterwards in these last five chapters that we read in Second Kings, it, it goes from really good to really bad very quickly, doesn't it? Because we move from King Hezekiah, who's a faithful king to God, to his son Manasseh. And Manasseh takes the throne when he's 12 years old, which there's some things to think about in the midst of that, because if we know the story of Hezekiah, one of the gifts that Hezekiah has been given was an extra 15 years of life that God gave him. But Manasseh is 12 years old. He's born during that extra 15 years of life. And so many of the miracles that had happened during Hezekiah's reign are foreign to Manasseh as far as experiencing it and seeing it himself. I don't know whether that plays a role in his unfaithfulness, but what we see is Manasseh has the longest reign of anybody in Judah of 55 years, and he spends it doing all the things opposite that his father would want him to do. He's faithless, to say the very least, to the very end of his life, where he himself turns back. But he does things so badly that God says, because of the sin of Manasseh, judgment is now coming on the southern kingdom. As a matter of fact, Manasseh is compared to Ahab in the northern kingdom. Ahab was the bad king in the northern kingdom by which judgment would come to the people of Israel. And now Manasseh is the bad king in the southern kingdom by which judgment is going to come from Judah. We get to see the beginning of that, the promise of God that that judgment is going to take place, and the fulfillment of that in the end of this section of Scripture that we look at. And so we see Manasseh, we see his son Ammon, who rules for a couple of years, and then we see Josiah. And Josiah is, is a king, is, is a bright pearl in the midst of all of this darkness. And we're going to come back to him because that's where we're going to spend our time in the Scripture. After Josiah's reign, we would see more unfaithful kings for another about 20-some-odd years, and then the fall of Jerusalem after King Zedekiah would not submit to the ruler of Babylon. And so they come in and they destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, destroy everything as a part of that and are carted off, leaving only a remnant that's there. A remnant, by the way, that would murder the governor that's there and make it even harder for the remnant to stay. Even some of those would flee down into Egypt. This is where we end at Second Kings. It's not a very big, it's not a very fun chapter to read. It's not a very fun history to read when we see the destruction of the southern kingdom. But it's a promise that God had kept when he said, I'm not going to let this stand any longer. But in the middle of all this, we have a bright king. And so what we're going to look at today is a, is a sermon that's titled, No Matter What. Because there's a number of no matter what's here that are happening within the context of the scripture we're going to be looking at today. And so if you'll turn with me, we're going to be in Second Kings chapter 22 and 23 today. And we're going to start by just looking at a passage of Scripture in 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 11 through 13. 
as it says this, and it says what, what's happened is they found the book of the law. Many people believe they found a, a copy of the book of Deuteronomy in the temple, okay? And so the priests, when they found this book, they bring it to King Josiah. And it says, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes and he gave these orders to Hilkiah, the priest, Hiakim, son of Saphon, Akbar, son of Micaiah, Saphon, the secretary, and Esahiah, the king's attendant. Go and inquire the Lord for me and for the people and for all of Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. So the first thing that happens is we see that the book of the law is found. The kings, if we remember back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, when it talks about the kings, were supposed to have a copy of the book of the law beside them, read to them, and reading it always so that they would know what was going on. How bad things have gotten in Israel and Judah during this time is that the book is lost. Nobody knows where it's at. They haven't heard it, and it's definitely not in the king's household. Manasseh didn't have it there. We don't know if Hezekiah had it there. It's been lost a long time. And so when the words are being read, he realizes we are in a lot of trouble because we haven't been following what God wants us to do. And so he brings this to the attention of the people in the beginning of chapter 23. It says, Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and he went up to the temple of the Lord with the men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commands, regulations, and decrees with all of his heart and all of his soul. That's confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. And then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. So now we have a king who's leading the way God wants him to lead. We are going to recommit to the covenant that God has for us during this time. Great is his anger against us because we haven't been doing these things. Not only do I know this, I've torn my robes over it. I'm heartbroken over it. Now I'm going to tell the people and we're just going to read the word of God. We're going to say, this is what we agreed to. We're not doing a good job with this. We're not doing a good job with this. And what comes from this commitment from the people? Everybody agrees to it. We want to follow this. This doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's quote-unquote on board, but they're following the king's lead, okay? And in following the king's lead, we see some drastic things happen from there on out because of this commitment, Starting in verse 4, and we're going to read through verse 25. We're going to read a lot of things that happen here. It says, The king ordered Hilkiah the high priest and the priest next in rank and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple of the Lord all of the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all the starry hosts. And he burned them outside of Jerusalem in the fields of the Kendron Valley and took the ashes to Bethel. And he did away with the pagan priests appointed by the kings of Judah to burn incense on the high places of the towns of Judah and on those around Jerusalem, those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and to the moon, to the constellations and to all the starry hosts. 
And he took the Asherah pole and from the temple of the Lord to the Kindred Valley outside of Jerusalem and burned it there. He ground it to powder and he scattered the dust over the graves of the common people. He tore also the quarters of the male shrine prostitutes which were in the temple of the Lord and where the women did weaving for Asherah. Josiah brought all the priests from the towns of Judah and desecrated the high places from Gibeah to Beersheba where the priests had burned incense and he broke down the shrines at the gates at the entrance to the gate of Joshua, the city governor, which is on the left of the city gate. And although the priests of the high places did not serve at the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, they ate unleavened bread with their fellow priests. And he desecrated Topheth, with, with, uh, which is in the valley of Ben-Hanim, so no one could use it for sacrifice to sacrifice his son or daughter in the fire to Molech. And he removed from the entrance to the temple of the Lord the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. And they were in the court near the room of an official named Nathan Melech. Josiah then burned the chariots dedicated to the sun. And he pulled down the altars the kings of Judah had erected on the roof near the upper room of Ahaz, and the altars of Manasseh had built in the two courts of the temple of the Lord. And he removed them from there, smashed them to pieces, and threw them to rubble into the Kindred Valley. And the king also desecrated the high places that were east of Jerusalem on the south hill of corruption, the one Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the vile goddess of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the vile god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the people of Amnon. Josiah smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles and covered the sites with human bones. Even the altar at Bethel, the high place made by Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who had caused Israel to sin, even that altar and high place he demolished, and he burned the high place to the ground and ground it to powder and burned the Asherah pole also. And then Josiah looked around, and when he saw the tombs that were there on the hillside, he had bones removed from them and burned on the altar to defile it in accordance with what the word of the Lord had proclaimed by the man of God who foretold these things. And the king asked, What is that tombstone I see? And the men of the city said, It marks the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and pronounced against it the altar of Bethel, the very things you have done to it. Leave it alone. He said, don't let anyone disturb his bones. So he spared his bones and those of the prophet who had come from Samaria. Just as he had done at Bethel, Josiah moved and defiled all the shrines and high places that the king of Israel had built in the towns of Samaria that had provoked the Lord to anger. Josiah slaughtered all the priests of those high places on the altars that burned human bones on them. That, and, and then burned human bones on them, and then went back to Jerusalem. And the king gave this order to all the people, celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant. And not since the days of the judges who led Israel, nor throughout the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, had any such Passover been observed. But in the 18th year of, the king, of, Josiah, of, of king Josiah, this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. Furthermore, Josiah got rid of the mediums and spiritists, the household gods, the idols, and all the other detestable things seen in Judah and Jerusalem. This he did to fulfill the requirements of the law written in the book that Helkiah the priest had discovered in the temple of the Lord. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his strength in accordance with all the law. Of Moses. 
The first thing we see is that Josiah, when he gave his heart to God to follow him, he did it no matter what. More than any other king before him. Did you hear that list of all of those idols in all of those places and all the other kings of Judah and Israel that had tolerated that over that period of time? None of them completely got rid of all of it until Josiah came along. You know why? How do we know this? Because Solomon's high places were still up around Jerusalem. Three of them named specifically the Asherah pole that was up there, to the god of of Chemosh that was there, to the detestable god of the Ammonites, Molech, Solomon put those up. They'd been up this whole time. Every other king of Judah didn't tear them down. They were allowed to stay. As a matter of fact, when we read about this, we read about some of the very people that we we note are not great people. Jeroboam, same thing. Remember the calf idols in the northern and southern parts of the kingdom, one at Bethel and one in the north in Dan? Well, it says in this passage of Scripture that Josiah not only stayed in Judah and did all of that, he went up to Israel, to that former land, destroyed those calf idols, destroyed all the other idols that were all around Samaria and all around the kingdom of Israel, the former kingdom of Israel that no longer exists, and destroyed all of them as well. At the beginning of the split kingdom, Jeroboam had erected those golden calves. Now, why did he do it? Because he was worried, political power, that if people came down to Jerusalem, that they would worship the one true God, and that somehow the the separate kingdoms of the north and south might be reunited again. And so he erected these calf idols and all these altars in other places and started the idolatry that would happen in the northern kingdom. And it was never taken down, even when they went off to exile. But here Josiah, Josiah's mortified. And not just kings of old such as Solomon, but more recent kings such as Manasseh that had so many things that were in the temple of the Lord. He wanted it all cleaned out, everything, all of it gone, destroyed, want it gone, away from here. Because he was going to serve God no matter what. No matter what. You know what's so funny about this passage, or I say, should say ironic, or, or maybe even more convicting, is that we, there's a, a little detail, both before and after this takes place, that Josiah knew. And he still decided, I'm serving the Lord no matter what. So turn with me real quick, back to 2 Kings chapter 22. Because when Josiah inquires and has, after he's read the book personally himself, he says, we need to go and inquire of the Lord what's going to happen here. And so Hilkiah the priest in verse 14, Arachim, Akbar, Saphan, and Isaiah went to speak to the prophetess Huldah, who is the wife of Shalom, son of Tikva, son of Hares, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the second district, and she said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. 
Tell the man you sent me, this is what the Lord says, I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people. According to everything written in the book, the king of Judah has read. Because they've forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and provoked me to anger by all the idols their hands have made, my anger will burn against this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire, he sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I had spoken against this place and its people that they would become accursed and laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your fathers. You will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place. And so they took her, they took her answer back to the king. And then we look in Second Kings chapter 23. At the end of that passage, after we have seen him tear down all of these things and then celebrate the Passover. Many believe this is the year of Jubilee or the Sabbath Passover that they were supposed to do every seven years. But you never saw it happen. And it says you never did this in Judges. You never did this during the reign of kings. The only time this was ever happened in the history that's recorded is right here with Josiah. Even after all of that, verse 26, nevertheless, The Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger, which burned against Judah because of all that Manasseh had done to provoke him to anger. So the Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my presence as I removed Israel, and I will reject Jerusalem, the city I chose, and this temple about which I said, there shall my name be. Despite reforms that have never taken place, In the same way that Josiah had done. He knew this beforehand. He knew this afterward. He still decided he was going to serve God no matter what. Judgment's still coming. No matter what you do, my wrath will not be turned away from this place. He's destroyed every idol. He's celebrating Passover. He's doing all the things that God has required in the law for a king to lead his people. And God says, I'm already passing judgment. It's already going to happen. Nothing's going to change that. He was told that at the beginning before these reforms had even started. But he had made up his mind that I'm still going to serve God no matter what. And God had already made up his mind that he was going to punish Judah no matter what. That's the type of story you and I want to hear, right? That idea that judgment's still going to happen, that hard things are still going to come upon the people that are there. But I love Josiah's unwavering commitment to God, that God is just, God is right, I'm still going to serve him even though he's going to punish me. I mean, I liken God's answer to Josiah More like this, not that Josiah is a rebellious child, but if we look at the nation of Judah like this, it's kind of like this. How many of you have ever counted the three to your kids before as they're growing up? How many of you guys have done that? How many of you count to five? Ten? Those of you count to ten, you count too long. (laughs) All right, so I remember our kids growing up. We would tell them we want them to do something. And if they don't do it, they're going to be in trouble. And we start telling them, you're going to clean the dishes. You're going to do your room. You're going to whatever, whatever it is. 
One, two, how many of you do two and a half? Don't do two and a half. It's a terrible thing. Kids don't need to understand fractions. What's wrong with you? Now, as a child, that's what I would do. My dad would go one, two, and I go two and a half, two and three quarters, two and seven eighths. I would do that. Sometimes he would laugh. Sometimes he would get madder. If he laughed, I, I sometimes got off the hook. If he got madder, it didn't. No, that's not good. Anyway, so my encouragement to you as kids don't don't do the fraction thing. I'm telling your parents not to accept that. Okay. When you get to three. I will tell you how I did it. Three meant point of no return. And sometimes my kids, once I got to three, it was like, no, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. See, I'm doing this now. And they get down, they start cleaning the dishes. Uh-uh, it's trouble time. No, 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 I'm doing it. Nope. It's all, it, it don't matter if you do it now. You can make the kitchen spick and span. Now it doesn't matter. You know why? I got to three. It doesn't matter anymore. Because you know once I get to three, it's over. This is kind of God talking to Josiah as the people of Judah as a whole. Josiah is doing all the right things. Josiah is personally wanting to serve God in a way that no other king has before or since. But God is basically saying, I've already got to three. Judgment's coming and there's nothing you can do. And though you're doing a great thing here, and that's an honoring thing, and I, and I believe that this is why Josiah is seen as such a good king, it won't alleviate the judgment that's going to come. And what's so beautiful about Josiah is he still serves God no matter what. No matter what. That's the type of commitment you and I ought to have to God, right? Because we're not guaranteed what life is going to look like here on earth, right? And we know that the people of Israel were not necessarily, or people of Judah were not necessarily like Josiah, who wanted to serve God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because we know that they turn away from all of those reforms right after he dies because there's never another good king after him. As a matter of fact, in Jeremiah 44, you don't need to turn there, but after the exile had taken place, the people said, look, when we had reforms, because Jeremiah was alive during the time of Josiah, when we had reforms and we did and we put away all of our idols, what happened? Things got worse. Didn't God promise that things were going to get worse? Didn't God promise that judgment was going to come? All of those things God said was going to happen no matter what. But what happened afterwards, so no, we're going to, we're going to serve the queen of heaven and we're going to bake cakes to her and we're going to continue our idol worship because serving God didn't do us any good. Well, you served the Baals for so very long and all of these other gods for so very long. Punishment was going to happen. And so they turned back to their corrupt ways again. So we know a couple of things. God was going to punish the people of Judah no matter what. And we know that Josiah was going to serve God no matter what. It didn't matter how bad it was going to be. 
And you know, as we look at this passage of Scripture and we look at the righteousness of Josiah because of what he had seen, you know, it's interesting to me. He reads the book of the law, and it wasn't like he needed somebody to interpret it for him. All he needed to do is read the straightforward word of God and say, oh, we're doing wrong stuff. We're doing bad stuff. We're doing stuff that God doesn't want us to do. Not any different today, is it? You and I are believers, and those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, can I tell you, it ain't rocket science to follow Jesus. It just comes from a commitment that what I believe concerning the Word of God, that He is the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins, my wrongdoings, that God gets to define. I don't get to define what those sins are. He defines them. And because He died for those sins and showed He had power over those sins by rising from the dead, that all who believe in Him, according to His Word, have eternal life. But that means the type of commitment he wants is a type of commitment that Josiah had, that you're going to serve him no matter what. Because the world around us, just like the world in Israel and Judah before, thought of all different types of ways they could compromise to circumvent the Word of God so that it wasn't being obeyed. So much so that the straightforward reading of the Word of God, when Josiah got it, it was like, oh man, we're in trouble. We're so in trouble. I dare say the same thing is happening today. Yet Solomon built all of those altars for his wives. Remember, he's married 700 wives. He wasn't supposed to have so many wives because according to the word of God, marrying that many wives will turn his heart away from God and serve those other gods. What do we see? Altars built to those gods that remained all the way to Josiah's time, 400 years later. And it says all the kings of Judah had allowed these these high places to be erected. Why? Because it's a spirit of compromise there. Being ruler of a people, you sure don't want everybody mad at you, right? So even the good kings didn't necessarily tear down all the bad stuff that was there. Until Josiah came along. And what about today? If we look in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 6 through verse 8, we're told these words by Paul when he says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. I would say that the idols that we deal with in today's society are not idols of mortar or brick or stone or gold or silver that we bow down to. I would say that they're the idols of ideologies that are up against the clear-spoken Word of God, 
that if you and I just read the Word of God for what it said, we could have an undeniable truth. This is what it means. And we have philosophies that have grown up in our society, even within other churches, that seem to say, hey, I've spent 10 years trying to figure out how to circumvent these scriptures so I can basically do what I want to do. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, Paul's talking about defending his ministry while he is there. And he says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ." See, this is what King Josiah was doing. The book of the law, the book of the covenant that had been given to him, that had been lost for how long, nobody knows. But it wasn't by the king's bedside for him to read at night. And it had led to all of this idolatry that had worked itself out, not just in Judah, but in the northern kingdom as well. Because of the forgetfulness of the people and the leaders to say, hey, this is what the Word of God says. This is who's the one who's supposed to be leading us. This is what we're going to do. But a lot of those things are inconvenient. The year of Jubilee, for example. Everybody was supposed to get their land back. Their original land back. It passed over to them. So all the people who were rich who had gotten rich over all of this time because land was money, honestly, would have to lose possessions that they had gained over the years because the families would get their land back. It's easy to see why the people of Israel did not celebrate it, even though it was in the Word of God that they were supposed to. It's easy to see why Solomon allowed 700 wives in his life because if he married all of the people around him, then he's related to them. So nobody's going to attack their son-in-law. It's a pretty high price to pay for peace. That's 700 wives, 300 concubine. Oh, you want, to, you want us to make a high place for your God and for your God and your God? Okay, we'll do that, but we're going to live in a peaceful kingdom. See, all these compromises taking place within the kingdom that God didn't want. And Josiah is tearing all of that down. But he only does it when he compares it to what the Word of God says. And you and I live in a culture right now are saying a lot of really, really strange things. A lot of gods in our culture right now saying things that are totally against what the Word of God is. And I'm sorry to say there are many Christians who try very hard to justify why it's all right for them to be a part of those sins. When the plain, straightforward reading of God's Word won't allow it. 
We become like the kings of Judah, like the kings of Israel, who have allowed other things to invade our life without comparing it to the Word of God, to demolish those arguments, to demolish those false philosophies, to point them out for what they are, that they're not for the believer. I don't expect a pagan to act like a Christian, but I expect a Christian to act like a Christian. But that only happens when you and I take on the attitude of Josiah and say, I'm going to serve Jesus no matter what. No matter what. I'm going to compare everything that this world is doing to the Word of God, the straightforward reading of the Word of God, and I'm not going to try and circumvent it. I mentioned before, I'll mention it again because it still disturbs me. On a youth pastor network, a youth pastor there, saying it took them 10 years to accept homosexuality because they had to circumvent the straightforward reading of the Word of God. And I know all the linguistic gymnastics that they do to do it. But you can't get it just reading it. You can't. Or living together or whatever else. Name your sin. Doesn't matter. If I read it straightforward from there, you don't have a right, and neither do I for that matter, have a right to circumvent it for my convenience so I can keep that sin in my life. It leads to the same type of destruction and judgment except for our souls instead of a nation. See, the nation of Judah is going to be kicked out of the land just as God promised. For you and I, the subversion of that and saying that causing these little ones to sin, Jesus said, guess what? You cause these little ones to sin, you'd better, it'd be better if you had a millstone tied around your neck and throw yourself into the sea. I don't think things go well for a person like that. And yet we're seeing more and more and more of it. And why? Because popular people are seeing their families struggling with the sins of this age. And instead of condemning it and standing for God, because they're going to serve God no matter what, they succumb to it and compromise for the sake of peace. When there really is no peace. And it doesn't prevent the the oncoming judgment of God on the lives of the people that they love. They've just tricked themselves to thinking it's okay. And you and I as believers in Christ need to know this Word of God. And too many of us, just like the people of Judah, have forgotten it. We don't know it. As we're closing, and that's to our shame. As we're closing today, I want to share about a five-minute video, and it's a challenge to you. It's addressed to men, but I would address it to everybody who calls himself a believer in Christ, whether you're a man, a woman, a teenager who grew up in the church, a young adult. I want you to consider the words that are said and understand what it's going to take for you and I to really serve Jesus no matter what, to be someone like a King Josiah who has a chance of changing the culture around them by the people whom we can affect for Christ if we'll serve Him no matter what.
sound in faith. In our culture, in modern American Christianity, we will not tolerate biblical, theological, and spiritual maturity in men. We just can't have it. Nothing above mediocrity. Oh, what do you mean? I mean, we're at this conference, and we, I mean, of course we're all about this. We want men to be mature. We want men to grow up. Listen, I can prove it to you. In most of our churches, if you have a young man who's 16, 17, 18 years old, and this young man is reading church history, and he's reading theology, he knows his Bible, he's studying his Bible, he has a passion for the Word of God, has a passion for the things of God, and a passion for the people of God. You know what happens in the average American church? They look at that 16, 17, 18-year-old young man, and they say, God must be calling you to preach. Really? Why? Because you love the Bible, you love theology, you love church history, you're passionate about the things of God. Now, what we ought to say is, well, that just means you're a Christian, right? No, not in the modern American church. And you know this is true. In the modern American church, if a young man gets that serious about the things of God, immediately the mediocrity of manhood in the modern American church says, you need to get away from the rest of us because we will not tolerate your passion. You've got to go get a seminary degree. You've got to go become a pastor. You've got to put reverend in front of your name so that I no longer feel guilty about my own mediocre pursuits. And because of that, modern American Christianity is the only place in our culture where we will tolerate this cognitive dissonance between a man who will say, I've been walking with God 30, 40, 50 years, and I know nothing. Because anywhere else, I don't care what, you name the field. Name the field where in our culture, and I'm talking about just anybody, just lost pagans. Name the field. I don't care if it's bricklaying. I don't care if it's truck driving, whatever it is. If there's a man on the job who says, I've been doing this for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. And another young man comes to the job and says, hey, I've heard you've been doing this 30 years, 40 years. I know if there's anybody who can show me the ropes, you can show me the ropes. And we'd all say, yeah, of course, if he's been doing it that long, you ought to be able to come to him. And he ought to be able to show you the ropes. But what if the young man comes to the older man? who's been doing this for 30, 40, 50 years and says, brother, you've been laying bricks for 40 years and I've just started. Can I just come alongside you and watch you so that I can learn how to be a bricklayer because I'm sure you're a master at it now. Oh, I know master bricklayer. You've been walking with God 20, 30, 40 years. Sir, can I come alongside you as a younger man and you mentor me in doctrine theology, Bible, and church history, what's the response? I ain't no preacher. It's the only place in America where we accept something so ludicrous. Where a man can say, I've been walking with God 30, 40 years, and I proudly declare, I know nothing. I'm ignorant. I'm a babe in Christ. A 40-year-old baby and I'm not ashamed of it. Nowhere else is that acceptable. Only in the church. Only in the church. But the text says, one of the evidences of a man that belongs to God, who has been walking with God over time, is that he is sound in faith. He's sound 
We're called to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. And yet we proudly proclaim that because we don't have ordination papers, we're unwilling and unable to do it. If nothing else, just having read through the Bible for 40 years ought to make you somewhat of an expert. Amen? are easy words to hear. But it's the truth. We're called to be witnesses and disciples who make disciples of other people. That's a great commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Now I command you, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. Straightforward reading of Scripture. That's what you and I are called to do. Can't get out of it. Sorry. Not supposed to try and get out of it if we're believers. Not so supposed to hide behind it and say, oh, that's a preacher's job or the pastor's job or, or somebody else's job. That is your job as a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's my job as a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's only going to happen. That fulfillment of that right there is only going to happen. Every man, every woman, every teenager, every young adult, every older man who is in this place, it's only going to happen when you and I say, no matter what, I'm going to follow Him. No matter what, I'm going to compare all things to what I see in the Scriptures. No matter what, I'm going to share my faith, no matter what it might cost me. You and I make every excuse not to do it. We wonder why no change happens in our nation, in our community, in our neighborhood in our school system, you name it. Because if every good Christian becomes a professional pastor, where are all the faithful people in the world? What are they doing? My job as a pastor is to equip you for your works of service. That's my job. My job isn't to make disciples for you. My job is to make disciples as well but to equip you for your works of service. Whether that job is you as a parent teaching your kids about Jesus, whether that's you as a a person at work reaching out to your co-workers for the sake of Christ, whether it's you reaching out to your neighbors to start Bible studies and the like. And I know some of you are doing those things. But not enough to affect real change. Because I believe that my God is bigger than the problems that this world has to offer. I believe the redemption that is found in Christ is greater than the problems in this world. And it comes down to you and me saying, I'm going to serve God. I don't care how hard it gets. I don't care if I lose friends. I don't care what anybody thinks of me. I'm going to serve Jesus no matter what. And in a dark time that we might be living at right now in America, I'm going to be just like Josiah. I'm going to be that bright shining pearl that stands out in the darkness. 
Because I'm going to stand for God and I'm going to stand for Jesus. And that's a challenge to all of you. Man, if that reform that Josiah had done happened generations earlier, do you think Judah might have been saved? Maybe. Somebody that dedicated? That passionate of saying no compromise. No compromise. Straightforward reading of the word, pretty simple. I'm just going to do it. For you who call yourself a believer in Christ, number one, know your word. You know, through the word of God, we understand not just how important the word of God is, but all the disciplines that you guys are, are wanting to to move upon the world of prayer, knowing how to pray. I want to know how to pray. Well, it's in the Word. Jesus teaches us. I want to know why fellowship is so important. It's in the Word. Jesus teaches us. I want to understand how to outreach and to serve others. It's in the Word. It's literally there. Jesus teaches us. I want to know how to make disciples. It's, it's there. I want to know how to give the way God wants me to give. It's, it's right there. And more importantly, it's going to appropriately tell me what Jesus has done for us for, because from beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, it's all about Him and for His glory. All of it. And for you and I as a believer in Christ to have walked with Jesus and to say, I don't know how to tell somebody about Jesus. Well, if not you, who? Because you're the ones who are called by His name. Shouldn't you know a little bit about it? Because I guarantee you, if I told you about your favorite sports team, you could tell me everything, right? I can tell you about my favorite sports team. Wearing it today. Number one in the preseason rankings, if we have any. Pretty happy about that. But I'm happy to say I know more about Jesus than I know about Clemson. Gentlemen, that should be you. You should know more about Jesus than whatever your favorite hobby is. Women, that should be you. You should know more about Jesus than whatever your favorite thing to do is. Youth, that should be you. If you've grown up in the church, you should know more about Jesus and the Word of God than you know about any other subject you're, that, you, that you're interested in. I'm not saying you shouldn't be an expert in other subjects. But you guys are called by the name of Christ. And not to know what that name means represents for you as a believer in Christ and to the world whose hope it is is a dereliction of the duty that God has given us in the Great Commission and something we need to reclaim. And so my prayer for every one of you, including myself, is that we'll be like Josiah, standing out in a dark world uncompromisingly saying that I'm going to serve God no matter what. No matter what. Just stand with me. Some of you need to start taking your walk with Jesus seriously. Some of you need to stop trying to figure a way around what the straightforward reading of God's Word says that a Christian ought to do and ought to be because it's hard or inconvenient. should put in our hearts that we're going to serve Jesus first above everything else, above 
everything else. That can start today and from today can start transforming everything around us. Our relationships with our family, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers to a more redemptive one where we start seeing them coming to Jesus because we were willing to stand for him and to stop compromising no matter what. God, I want to thank you for today. Thank you for this time. I thank you for Josiah. I thank you for what he represented to the people of Israel, even if it was just for a short period of time, even though judgment was coming and he knew it, he wanted to serve you with all of his heart, with all of his mind, with all of his soul, with all of his strength, Lord. And God, we live in a culture that has false philosophies, false ideologies that are in everything. They're in our media. They're in our their music that we listen to. They're, they're in everything surrounding us, the books that we read, the stuff that we see online. And it's like we can't get away from it, oh God. And God, may we regard you more, Lord, that we would regard you, your word, our relationship with you higher than anything else. For those that are believers in Christ, may we reclaim that name by serving you no matter what. No matter how hard it is, dear Heavenly Father. No matter how how awkward it's going to make us feel around certain people to share these truths that you have in your word that are just straightforward, that you're telling us this is what we ought to do. God, that we would give ourselves wholly as a sacrifice upon your altar, living sacrifice, that we might know what your good, perfect, and good will is for our lives, Lord, because we refuse to compromise anymore. No matter what, it's just you, Lord. It's just you because of what you've done in Christ. And because of that, I'm going to compare everything that comes into my life so that I may glorify you and bring you glory in front of others, that they may see your glory and come to praise Jesus too. God, I pray that's the heart cry of every single person here. May it not be said of us, Lord, that after five years of studying your word, we know nothing. God, if people called by your name know nothing, who in the world is going to share of the good news of Jesus Christ? May it start with us, Lord. May it start with us. No matter what comes, may. Whatever whatever happens, Lord, whether good things are going to happen in our country or not, it doesn't matter. In the name of Jesus and Him alone is life. May we proclaim it to all who will listen uncompromisingly, no matter what. In Jesus' name, amen.